Turn with me to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, looking at verses 6 through 10 today. Uh, Last Sunday, we began a new series in the letter of Paul to the Galatians that uh, should take us uh, roughly through the rest of this year. And then, uh, Lord willing, we'll pick up the gospel of Luke again in 2018. Uh, and, but today we turn to uh, these verses just after Paul's greetings, where Paul gets right down to business and shares his uh, urgent concern for the churches in Galatia. Uh, before we read uh, verses 6 through 10, let me lead us once again in prayer and we'll ask the Lord for his help. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your amazing love for us. That in your grace you sought us and you bought us. We thank you for the grace of Christ who gave himself for our sins and delivers us from this present evil age. Lord, as your people now, we ask that you would minister to us through the preaching of your word. Keep us centered on the one true gospel, the only gospel there is. The gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ. And Lord, may the preaching of your word bring pleasure to you and may it sanctify your people and may it be a word of salvation to those who have not believed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Let's hear the living and active word of God. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary To the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Well, the main idea that undergirds these verses is that there is only one gospel. There is no other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins and delivers us from this present evil age. And on the basis of that foundational truth, the Apostle Paul makes three important statements that we need to hear today. In verses 6 and 7, he says, The person who turns to another gospel turns away from God and from the grace of Christ. In verses 8 and 9, the person who embraces or teaches a perverted gospel is subject to the wrath and curse of God. And then in verse 10, the person who is a servant of the gospel lives to please God, not 
man. So again, the basic truth undergirding these statements is that there is only one gospel. Verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. But Paul realizes that that statement alone could be misunderstood. So he he quickly qualifies it in verse 7. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul is clear. I think Paul is crystal clear. There is no other gospel than the gospel that Paul and the other apostles preached when these churches were being established. As Paul established these churches in southern Galatia in modern day Turkey. Yes, there were some who were using the language of gospel. They would speak of sin and Christ and salvation and grace. But their teaching, Paul is saying, was not gospel. And so, it was a perversion. Now, I think that truth that there is only one gospel has two important implications that you and I need to think about for a few minutes today. Here's the first one. The truth that there is only one gospel is a clear, forthright, radical, unashamed, loving rejection of religious relativism. Uh, Religious relativism, which says religious truth is relative to culture or or it's subjective, it's, it's uh, limited to subjective opinions, and usually some universalism will be slipped in at this point and say, look, we all have our own paths, we're all on our own paths, but we're all making our way up the same mountain to the same God in our own way. That kind of religious relativism, dear friends, has lots of support in our culture, it has lots of support among people living around us, but it has no biblical support. Paul is saying here, if you reject the gospel of Christ, you cannot be saved. That's what Paul says here. And of course, that flies right in the face of the spirit of our age. I think a popular argument that all of us have heard in one form or another goes, goes something like this. You know, Christianity is, is one religion among many. Look, look at all of the different religions of the world. There are Literally thousands. Look at all of the different religious texts out there. There are thousands. So how, how can you possibly say that Christianity is unique? How can you possibly say that Christianity is the only right religion? The only one that's true? Now I call that an argument, but actually it's not, is it? It's not an argument at all. It's really a, a statement about a, of a reality, namely religious diversity, and then a quantum leap to this conclusion. Therefore, Christianity is subjectivized and equal to all of these other religions that are out there. One doesn't have claim to absolute truth. You see, that just doesn't follow there. What it is, is an assumption slipped in and presented as an argument, when in fact it's no argument at all. It's just an assumption people make. And here, But here's Paul. Here's what I want you to see. Times haven't changed all that much. Here is the Apostle Paul writing in uh, you know, the Roman Empire, a religious melting pot 
if there ever was one, and unashamedly, without hesitation, and with utter clarity, because the Apostle Paul loves people, declares that there is only one gospel. There is no other gospel. There there are not different gospels. There are not different ways to God. There is only one, namely through Jesus Christ. So that's the first implication of there being one gospel, a clear rejection of religious relativism and religious subjectivism. But secondly, as Christian disciples, this one truth that there is only one gospel must mean this, dear friends. Doctrinal maturity is not an option for us. It's a necessity. Notice, Paul is not confronting and denouncing, let's say, you know, Islam or Hinduism or animism or some other ism from coming outside, from outside of the church. What is Paul doing? No, Paul is confronting and denouncing false gospel, a false gospel that has arisen within the church, that has come up within the Christian community itself. That's what's striking and alarming about this. It was, it was being taught by alleged brothers, according to Galatians 2 verse 4. It was being taught by people who called themselves Christian, who, who named the name of Jesus, who used the language of the gospel. It was an internal perversion of the gospel of grace. So what does that tell us, my friends? As a, as a church, and as Christian disciples, it tells us that doctrinal maturity is not optional for Trinity Presbyterian Church. It is a necessity. If if a different gospel can arise within the church, then my friends, then we, we must learn to be discerning and scrupulous and precise in our doctrinal thinking. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 20, do not be infants in your thinking. Be infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. Be be developed. Be thoughtful. Be be able to to think and live in light of the doctrines of the gospel. I think this letter to the Galatians is one of the best places we can go and camp out for the next six months or so. If we together want to pursue clarity in the doctrines of, of the gospel. So this is what we're aiming for, for the rest of 2017 together, to be a church and a people who embrace the biblical gospel that cannot be changed or edited without someone being brought under a curse. But there's a trend today. If you want to talk about this afterwards, I'd be happy to do it. I think it's right to say there's a trend today in evangelicalism in which, of which we are a part that discourages doctrinal maturity. Now, nobody is going around saying, uh, you know, doctrinal uh, maturity doesn't matter or you should be, you know, doctrinally immature. But there is a trend, I think it's right to say, there is a trend to minimize doctrine because it's assumed that it has little to do with heartfelt, deep, joyful love for God. In other words... The head and the heart are, are rend asunder, or, or better yet, they're set in opposition to one another. And there is this underlying assumption 
That doctrinal precision doesn't matter because what really matters is your relationship with God. See that that's just flat out false here in a minute. But I think the result of that, if that goes unchecked, is it will produce a generation of Christians who become increasingly impatient and disinterested in learning doctrine because it requires careful thinking. And thinking is thought to be an enemy of feeling. And therefore, it's marginalized. It's put on the back burner. It's thought to be insignificant and unimportant. And the larger consequence of that, if it goes on, the inevitable outcome of that, dear friends, is a generation of Christians who will be sitting ducks for the Galatian heresy. For people who cannot tell true gospel from false gospel. A false gospel that can arise within their own midst. So, so brothers and sisters, I, I, I want to ask you, can, can we make this commitment together as a church? This is one of my challenges to you today. Recognizing we, we, believe, we believe that knowing God and loving God go together. We know God in order to love God and in order to serve God. We believe that doctrinal maturity is an act of devotion. We believe that doctrinal maturity is not a luxury in the Christian life. It is a necessity so that we are not led astray from the God we love. Therefore, let's commit ourselves to this. We will do the hard work of learning Christian doctrine. And we will, we will not leave it to the ivory tower scholars or to the armchair theologians because together... We all need to know the truth of the gospel. So let's make that our goal today, to be mature in our thinking. And coming back to the main idea here, the truth undergirding this text is there's only one gospel, and we looked at two implications of that, rejection of religious relativism and subjectivism, and third, or second, the necessity of doctrinal maturity. It's necessary for a healthy church and healthy Christian living. But out of that foundational truth that there is only one gospel, as I said, Paul makes three statements in this passage that you and I need to briefly look at. Here's the first one. The person who turns away from the gospel turns away from God and the grace of Christ. Again in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you and the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, if you read that carefully, Paul says there are two consequences of turning away, of deserting the gospel. And Paul says the two consequences are this. You desert God and you turn away from the grace of Christ. And so if you turn away from the gospel, you're turning away from the God who calls the, the God who personally summons people through the ministry of the gospel to, to come and find grace in Jesus Christ. My friends, don't let anyone ever tell you that a concern for gospel doctrine is a purely intellectual, impersonal exercise. You see, what, you see what Paul does here, how he links doctrinal belief to fellowship with God. It's pervasively personal, isn't it? The Galatians, follow this, 
the Galatians were turning to a different gospel. They were in the process of doing that. In other words, they were embracing false teaching. They were embracing wrong doctrine, wrong beliefs. What's the consequence of that? Deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. So according to Paul, doctrine is a personal matter. When you turn away from the gospel, you turn away from the God of the gospel. When you turn away from the grace of Christ, you turn away from Christ himself. It's relational. Better yet, it's anti-relational. If you turn away from the doctrine of the gospel, Paul is saying you are deserting a person. And for those of you with a military background, you, you understand something of the severity of that term. You're deserting the God who has called you through the ministry of the gospel, Paul is saying. And so if you turn to a, a different gospel, you're turning away from God. And then secondly, it, it continues on to be a personal matter. You're turning away from not just abstract grace. You are turning away from the grace of Christ. I think Galatians 5.4 sheds some light on this and explains what was happening when people were embracing this other gospel. Paul says there, you are severed from Christ, you who would seek to be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. So if a person makes a profession of faith, they've heard the gospel proclaimed, Christ has been set forth, they profess faith in the gospel of Christ, and then they begin to turn away to a perverted or distorted gospel, Paul is saying he is falling away from the most precious thing that God extends to sinful humanity, grace in Christ. You're turning away from it, Paul says. And it's utterly shocking to the Apostle Paul. He says, I am astonished that after hearing about Jesus Christ crucified and raised for your salvation, that you're turning to a different gospel. And you hear the passionate plea of Paul for these, these dear ones. Imagine Paul perhaps getting ready to go on another missionary journey and word comes in from, from Iconium and Lystra and, and Derby, and these messengers come and say, Paul, Paul, they're turning away from the gospel. They're, they're going back to the, to the elemental spirits of this world. They're turning to legalism. And Paul, you see what he says, oh foolish Galatians, what are you thinking? He's astonished. He writes this letter and I think I said this last week, he spares the niceties. He, there's, there's no prayer of thanksgiving. Paul gets right down to it. And he says to them, if you turn from the gospel, if you turn from the doctrines of the gospel, what you're actually doing is turning away from God and from Christ. So there's only one gospel. And here's the second statement that arises from that truth. Anyone who teaches or embraces a perverted gospel is subject to the wrath and curse of God. Look at verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then Paul says it again, basically, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
That's a daring thing to say, isn't it? To call down condemnation. Not just on anyone, but even if an angel from heaven proclaims a gospel contrary to the one that has been delivered to the saints through the apostles, Paul says, let him be accursed. The word Paul repeats here is the word anathema in the Old Testament. It's, It's associated with people and things that are set apart and devoted to destruction. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, the word anathema is, is connected to, uh, in Romans uh, 9.3, being separated from Christ. And in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, this language is used. Subject to eternal destruction, cut off from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is, this is strong stuff. This is is severe language that the Apostle Paul is using, and it's appropriate. It's appropriate because when a person rejects the gospel or a person perverts the gospel, they are rejecting or perverting the gospel of God. Remember where we started in the letter of Galatians. Paul has already said That the gospel I proclaim to you is not of men. It's not from men nor through men. Because I am an apostle. I am called and commissioned by Christ with the other apostles to teach the church the things that Christ wants to teach the church. So the issue here is a matter of divine revelation. The issue here is not one man's opinions being said in contrast to the opinions of another man or the group of, of these false teachers. Now the issue here is divine revelation. And so Paul wants to be crystal clear about how serious this actually is. The result of rejecting or perverting the gospel of God, the only gospel there is, is separation from Christ. And if we remain there, eternal destruction I think I need to say this then. Therefore, anyone, no matter how powerful, no matter how popular, no matter how persuasive, no matter how large they're following, anyone who proclaims a gospel contrary to the apostolic gospel once for all delivered to the saints. Well, what does Paul say? Let him be accursed. Some of you... Many of you, I think, will be familiar with the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that certain popes have spoken words that are infallibly true and must be obeyed by all genuine Christians, even though, even though those words contradict the apostolic gospel. What does Paul say about that? When teaching is being added to the gospel, when things contrary to the word of God are being required, Paul says, let them be accursed. Some of you have heard radio preachers, television preachers, say they've received a revelation from God apart from the revelation of scripture that stands in utter contradiction with the gospel of Christ. 
And even after being confronted about that false teaching, they go on because they have this large following. What does Paul say about that? Let them be accursed. I'm not going to leave myself out of this. If Jared Havener begins preaching a perverted gospel from the pulpit of Trinity Presbyterian Church, what does Paul say? Let him be accursed. And the reason I think Paul calls down a curse, not only on false teachers, but on anyone who rejects the gospel, well, 1 Corinthians 16.22, listen to this. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. You see, the Apostle Paul, he did not have a superficial concern for the gospel and the glory of God, did he? Brothers and sisters, I find my own heart being exposed here by the zeal of Paul for the gospel. Paul understood that the gospel is the point of contact in which the glorious God reaches out to a wicked and sinful humanity. And when people reject that gospel or distort that gospel, something rages up in the Apostle Paul against that crime. And I wonder how you respond when people reject or distort the gospel of Christ. Paul is appealing here to the reality of God's wrath to wake the Galatians up. He is is appealing to ultimate realities that our deadened minds so often have a hard time of comprehending. The, The sheer horror of the word anathema. And Paul is appealing to these realities to show that the issue at hand is not a friendly debate. It is a matter of life and death. So he is willing to speak hard truth because he knows that rejecting this gospel is the most horrible decision a person can ever make. And because of that, He's passionate about God's glory and he's passionate about the gospel. So again, there's only one gospel and then the third statement that arises from that truth is this, that the servant of the gospel lives to please God alone, not man. Look at verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man... I would not be a servant of Christ. Why does Paul say that? What relation does that have to what Paul has just said? I think the connection is this. In verses 8 and 9, Paul has just said something that is not going to promote his popularity. Let him be accursed is not something you say if you're looking to gain a large following, is it? So Paul now feels, okay, I need to explain why I'm willing to speak these hard truths Why he's willing to speak so honestly and candidly with the Galatians. And the reason he gives is this. In terms of priority, the approval of God is up here. And the approval of man, it's down here. And so I must speak the truth that has been revealed. Now, Paul also understands that two things are at stake when the gospel is perverted. When the gospel is distorted, these two things are at stake. The glory of Christ and the salvation of sinners. 
So when the gospel is being distorted, the all-sufficiency of Christ to save is dishonored. And the, and the way for sinners to be saved is blocked. And Paul understands that. Therefore, if Paul is to serve God, who wills that Christ be exalted in the gospel and that sinners be saved, then Paul must and we must passionately resist perversions to the gospel. And then we have to say with Paul, let the opinion of man be what it may. You see, the glory of Christ and the salvation of sinners is at stake. So Paul is willing to speak hard truth in love. What's the application of this verse for us? Verse 10. This, uh, as I thought about this verse during the week, it, it really ministered to, to my soul. And I hope, I hope this applies to you. Well, let's first of all be clear about what the application is not. The application of verse 10 is not that the more people you can offend, the more faithful and spiritual you are. Okay, let's, let's be absolutely clear about that. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul's aim was never to displease or offend people. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, 32 and 33, Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. In other words, make this your one great goal, your one great aim, God's glory. And then in everything you do, seek to please your neighbor, not for self-promotion, but for their salvation. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't make it your aim then to to offend or to displease people as if that is a sign of spiritual maturity. Make it your aim to glorify God and do whatever you can to promote the gospel in their life. But let's go a little bit further here and think about, here's what I want you to think about today. I want you to think about how verse 10 liberates us. Think about this. If, If you live for the approval of God and not man, You're free. You're free from the obligations and the the commandments, the expectations of this person and that person and that person, these conflicting expectations that people place upon you. You have one Lord, Jesus Christ. So, So the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ, it sets you free because it means you have one ultimate Master, Christ Jesus. And I think if you, if you follow that through, it brings an incredible clarity and simplicity into your life. Living for the approval of God clarifies every situation that you might find yourself in. Shall I take this job? Shall I move there? Shall I uh, become a member at this church? Shall I watch this movie? Shall I follow this crowd? Shall I run with these people? Shall I spend my time in that way? On and on the questions can go. All of those, frankly, become easy questions to answer when you do not live to serve self or others, but you live as a slave of Christ. And so I think this verse highlights the, the glorious liberty of being a slave of Jesus Christ. That's the word here. 
It brings, it brings clarity and simplicity to your life. And you know, sometimes when you serve Christ, it will please and edify people. And that's wonderful. I mean, I, I love it when some of you come to me after the service and talk about how God's word ministered to you. It, it's an encouragement to me. But other times when you are seeking to serve Christ, you will not please people. You will actually displease people. And this verse tells us that's okay. It's okay. It's okay because you do not live for the approval of man. You live for the approval of God. So there is nothing more liberating, nothing more freeing than being a slave of Jesus Christ. Nothing more freeing and clarifying than a single-minded life. People who live by the words of Colossians 3, where Paul says, here's a description of the freest people on earth. You are serving the Lord Christ. And just before that, he says, so whatever you do, do it all for Christ and not for the approval of man. Well, let's just sum up this passage Again, there's one foundational truth. There's only one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Two implications of that. We reject the religious relativism and subjectivism of our age, and my friends, doctrinal maturity is not a luxury for us. It's a necessity. And on the basis of that one truth that there is only one gospel, these three statements follow. First of all, if you turn away from the gospel, you turn away from God and the grace of Christ. Two, anyone who teaches or embraces a perverted gospel is under a curse. If you remain there, hear me, friends, I'm not saying that you've You've committed an unforgivable sin. It means that if you go on rejecting the gospel, you choose curse. And then third, the person who embraces the gospel of grace. Well, first they're they're forgiven by God. Their, Their sins are washed away. They are cleansed and accepted by God and counted righteous in Christ, and then you see they have a clarifying single purpose that sets them free from the tyranny of seeking the approval of men. They are set free in all of life to be a slave to Christ alone. And so, my friends, may may the God of this one gospel give us the grace to serve our one Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this passage. And we pray that you would guard us from ever leaving the gospel. Lord, make us a church and a people who are mature in our thinking, mature in our understanding of the doctrines of grace, so that we might better love you and better cling to you. Lord, I pray for any here who have rejected the gospel or who are perverting the gospel, that you would open their eyes to see that there is but one gospel, the gospel of free grace in Christ. And may we all run to him today and embrace him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.